From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Today, we're going to be talking about the legal education with Director of Experiential Programming and Professional Development, Chipo Nombuya. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. And join us every Saturday evening at 6 p.m. on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Welcome everyone to this episode of The Podvocate. My name is Leanne Jossen. I'm a 2L here at Loyola. And today I'm joined by Director Chipo Numbuya. So, Director Chipo, um, what do you do here at Loyola? Hi, Leanne. Um, happy to be here. Welcome, Loyola family. Um, thanks for having me. I am currently, actually, I have a new, I have a new title. So, I will be launching my new title on this uh, on this episode. I am the director director of experiential um, programming and professional development. So what I do is I oversee um, the externship program as well as uh, the practica, but then also overall provide professional development, um, professional development education um, for students. So that professional development is not to distinguish it from career services. It is more of law students in the profession in, in an experiential learning way academically. So looking at curriculums based in um, law school, is there such thing as an optimal law school curriculum? Oh, boy. (laughs) You've opened it up. You've kicked it off. I think that there is an optimal law school curriculum. I think because the profession is called the practice and it's called the practice for a reason, I think that I think that kind of theoretical foundation is not necessarily as important as the emphasis that we place on it. Um, I think there needs to be a greater emphasis placed on process, um, you know, process and practice. So when I went to law school, you know, so much of it was that, you know, the theoretical philosophical foundations in the practice and then building the skills through the, you know, through the theory. Um, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a student of history. Anyone who, anyone who knows me is, you know, is probably going to get tired of hearing this, but I'm a student of history and literature and so, as well as critical race theory. And so for me, I think the practice of law needs to be really tied much more closely uh, through an historical lens as well as an economic lens given our culture and society so that we can see what the actual foundations are and then we can um, integrate or you know you know kind of in parallel track integrate okay these are how the theories um, you know, these are how the theories play out and where they come from, because we're kind of helicoptered just into these theories without any kind of historical or economic uh, uh, foundation. So I think that that's really important. 
Yeah, I think so as well, especially given that the law is something that really builds on itself and the idea of precedent and the idea of decisions and ideas and cultural points that came before us, you really can't look at the law in a vacuum. So what would you say in terms of optimal study? Would you say that things like civil procedure and things like torts and stuff like that need to incorporate more history components and more um, reflective components in a way? I would say the short answer to your question is yes. But before we even get to that, I would say I would, you know, I would structure, I would even structure it differently because I think that it's it's not only the integration of the, the reflective components, but I think it is, you know, maybe even restructure the timing of when we do, when we do have those, you know, that, that kind of coursework, because we're not all coming we're not all coming from the same place when we enter law school and, uh, and, and, and establishing a context for rule of law and establishing a context for, you know, the, for, for, for our legal system, you know, the adversarial process, I think is, is, is what we should, is what we should really focus on. So, I think it would be, you know, a, a reordering of first thing is a reordering of of your core courses, and then um, an infusing, um, you know, as you said, of you know, infusing of the history and and more reflective, you know, more reflective learning uh, uh, in 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 that process. So I think it's I think it is the pedagogy, but it is also um, the, you know, just the entire structuring of the, of the curriculum. When you say reordering, what do you think specifically needs to be reordered or what order would be optimal for you or best practice? Um, so for best practice, I would have, a, you know, constitutional law, first of all, constitutional law be a one year, a one year course. Um, on the front end of, on the front end, you know, to, to start and to kick it off. I would then go into, you know, philosophical and then professional ethics. Um, and we partly do that, you know, with the introduction of PIF uh, three years ago, coming up four years ago. So we're, you know, we're, we're partly, we're partly doing that. And then, and then I probably would then have property and civil procedure. Um, and then we can then, you know, go into, go into the other courses, you know, in, in the second semester and have them be, you know, half semester courses, I'm not half semesters, but have them be semester courses as opposed to, um, uh, full year courses. Um, because when I was, when back in my day, um, in the 20th century, <laughs> when I was in school, uh, contracts of pro, and property were all were all one year courses, and then torts, and uh, torts and con law were semester courses. And so I think, you know, that's how I'm thinking about, you know, kind of like rejiggering it because I think those are the, I would say, you know, con law having it as a year because then that then you could then you get to have the 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 historical foundation 
property what to have oh okay this is how you know that that economic um that economic structural view of oh okay because of this there's that you know and then you know civil procedure you know starts to inch you into you know the 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 process of the practice yeah i think um having constitutional law be a full year provides a lot of opportunity to interweave the other subjects with constitutional law because there's massive overlap with that um with those doctrines and the other subjects you know there are tort law constitutional law cases there are civil procedure constitutional law cases there really is no area of the law where constitutional law does not have a a point and so it definitely makes the first year curriculum feel more cohesive versus kind of like, okay, now I'm taking torts, now I'm taking property, and they're all distinct classes versus feeling like a 100% like first year comprehensive curriculum. Right. Like you're steeped in like, oh, okay, I'm steeped in something. Now I'm building on, you know, what has evolved from this something. And I think, you know, and I think that that's, that's important. And it makes just procedurally, it makes more sense logically so that, you know, just for the simple reason for academic achievement, you know, because then logically that makes sense to students like, oh, okay, this is, you know, this is, this is going to be the practice of law. I mean, especially in our common law system, if we're in a civil law system, you know, Louisiana and a couple of states down south um, aside, you know, if we were in a a uh, you know civil code system, it would make sense to teach it the way that we do. But we're in a common law system, so common law, as you said, builds on precedent. So we need to, you know, show how that works. <laughs> and I think weaving the classes together would support student achievement anyway, because um, I know when I um, first started my two L year, I was taking a lot of health law courses, and so it really helped my understanding of the topic because all of those classes were very interrelated and discussed a lot of the same topics and I was able to apply my knowledge across the board. So I think that would be very good for student achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of teaching methods and even on Zoom, what teaching methods do you think are the most effective for teaching the law? Oh, for teaching the law. Again, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to come clean on a couple of things and a couple of my biases and my assumptions. One is I'm not an academician. So that's the, you know, that's the first thing that I'm going to, I'm going to say. The second thing I'm going to say is, is that my answer is going to be informed largely by the way that I learn. And so I think, to start to get into an, an answer, I think, you know, however the pedagogy is, there needs to be an understanding of the different ways your students learn. Um, and I think higher education, um, you know, graduate programs in higher education in particular do a disservice to themselves. And it may be strong to say a disservice to students, but professors don't have any training in pedagogy. And so what ends up happening is, is that it is just a delivery of information. And a delivery of information is different from teaching. And I think that, you know, if I, if I, if I were to have any major critique on 
you know, not just the law school education, but like I said, you know, the higher ed education is that there's nothing in educational pedagogy that is taught before people get out into teaching and delivering information. And you have people who, you know, you have people for whom it is clearly an avocation. Um, and then people who are like, wow, okay, I'm good because I'm good at delivering information, which is not necessarily good pedagogy. It just happens to fall in the place that we need it to fall. I think uh, anyone who's ever had a bad professor um, in undergrad or even a bad teacher in high school can really relate to that sentiment because some teachers really take it upon themselves to just give you the information, like you said, and really don't think about ways they can engage students with the knowledge mm -hmm. versus just mm -hmm. providing a specific set of facts or mm -hmm. black letter law. And you said, you said a key word because it's a distinction between information and knowledge. There's a lot of information out there, but there's not a lot of knowledge out there. Yeah. It's kind of like the uh, difference between intelligence and wisdom. Exactly. You really do need both to mm -hmm. um, behave effectively. Looking at methods of pedagogy, the Socratic method is something that is universally, you know, used in the law school teaching environment um, and perhaps other teaching environments as well. I'm not sure. But I guess what what was the initial calculus, do you know, behind the Socratic method and using this in the law school context? I think I would I would say the initial calculus, you know, not knowing the not knowing the history definitively behind this, ironically enough, um, is is, you know, c coming from that, you know, coming from that, uh, you know, kind of like political Western European Anglo ethos, you know, which is heavily informed by the inquiry that's, you know, that's done from Cicero, you know, on down to, from, from, I, sh I shouldn't say Cicero, you know, from Socrates on down, you know, to Cicero and then, you know, passing in through, in the Roman Republic into then the creation of the nation state and, you know, looking at how the legal profession evolved, um, you know, again, to then be this adversarial thing, the whole issue and question of, you know, debate and Socratic method being um, debate and oratory, you know, being the basis of, okay, this is how we, uh, you know, philosophically develop uh, 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 critical thinking, and this is how, you know, philosophical ethics is, you know, is is, is structured. So, very steeped in that, um, you know, it's very, I, I, you know, like I said, not knowing the history, um, but it's very steeped in that uh, tradition. So, did I lose the question in in the answer in that piece of the answer? No, so. yeah. it, was, it was an interesting response, um, and it makes me think a lot about the context behind, you know, the Socratic method as well. Um, do you think overall that it's an effective method of instruction? It can be, you know, if framed properly. So, again, it assumes it assumes that common history, and it assumes that. Uh, a common uh, a foundation in in serving critical thinking, um, and you know, people poo poo you know your humanities degrees within you know within liberal arts, but people don't realize that like okay, liberal arts are called liberal arts because they're it's broad. You know, 
sciences are in the arts, engineering are in the arts, uh, you know, but our education system has kind of detached and decoupled, um, you know, decoupled that, you know, science evolved from philosophy, you know, and, and, and we now kind of, you know, completely denigrate, you know, philosophy majors and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it, it can be if you have a, if you have, you know, an education, education system, not only K through 12, you know, but undergraduate in a social structure that has framed and provided the foundation for that to be so. But I certainly think that by your second semester of your first year of law school, Socratic method is something that can be a good tool because, you know, if you've, you know, once you've had that foundation, you know, coming in, then I think absolutely it can be, it can be that good tool to help you, um, to help students um, strengthen and sharpen their, their critical thinking and critical analysis that they need in order to practice and in order to, in order to learn. You mentioned that the Socratic method is kind of an offshoot of um, Western legal education. Are there other methodologies that are used in other um, spheres of the world where um, they might actually be more effective at teaching the law or equally as effective? I would probably say it's, you know, it's really, really hard because so much of the world has been colonized by <laughs> European countries. So even within, you know, even within the civil code system, the legal education there and the professionalization of the legal education there is a, you know, is still informed by that, but it's more informed by the philosophical study and that critical thinking is not so much done within, you know, it's not so much done within the frame of um, oratorical oratorical inquiry, but it is done within the frame of um, documentary inquiry, and then you have a bifurcated, you know, a bifurcated you know way of practicing. So, I think you know e- even within common you know even within common law systems, you know, I think of the UK because I've studied I've studied in the UK, and you know even within that, yes, there is you know Socratic, but only if you go to bar school, if you're going to be a solicitor, you know, that doesn't matter as much, you know, because all, all of that, you know, kind of like critical thinking has been, you know, done in a documentary way. Um, when you then think about traditional legal systems and structures, because um, I've worked in countries that, that, have, that have, you know, dual systems of statutory law and, and then customary law, um, when you think about how you know, customary law jurisdictions, um, you know, you know, your advocates within those systems, you don't need necessarily a Socratic method because it's done, well, first of all, the education, you know, the education, the professionalization of it is entirely different. So that's, you know, that's one consideration. Um, and so I would probably, I would probably venture to guess, you know, as you look at customary, you know, traditional and customary uh, law systems, or if you look at, um, you know, for, for our purposes here in the U.S., um, the Native American, uh, the Native American system, 
of, you know, of, of how um, disputes are resolved, of how cultures and societies are, um, you know, go through adversarial processes. The learning is not Socratic. It's probably more, it's, it's more, com- in, in, in my experience with, with customary law systems, it's communal and conversational. You know, it's not that interrogating kind of process. Yeah, it makes me think a little bit about alternative dispute methods as well, where it becomes more of a conversation versus an adversarial procedure. And so you're able to have a nice dialogue over the topic and the subject matter versus kind of like, you know, the traditional like cold calling, you're, you know, being asked a specific question, you're supposed to give a specific answer. And then almost it's like the conversation moves on without opportunity to further explore those options unless somebody intervenes or something with a question. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that some of those methods would be better to explore different topics and different structures of law as well. Exactly. And especially, I mean, especially when you're thinking about, um, so um, I'm, I'm fundamentally a transactional and, and, and um, transactional and then human rights and, and policy, uh, policy slash diplomacy attorney. And when you're, when you're negotiating and you are, you know, you're negotiating a contract, you're negotiating a deal, you can make it adversarial, but that just makes it so much more difficult. You know, you, you, you come in setting, you know, barriers and, you know, objections that are false objections just to make it adversarial. If you are clear, you know, for me, you know, the way I negotiate, if you are clear when you're negotiating that you do want to reach a deal, but you also have areas where you cannot, you know, that, that are not, um, you know, they're not negotiable or not compromisable, you, you approach it entirely differently. You know, you can have deliberate ambiguities in the four corners of the of, of a contract. You know, you can decide what needs to be specified. You can really go through and define rights, responsibilities, um, benefits, duties. You know, all of that. And so, you know, the art. You know, as I say, the art of diplomacy is the art of diplomacy. And so, the whole adversarial process doesn't really allow for that, you know, but like you said, you know, an alternative, an ADR process um, or even a negotiation process, you know, which is constantly fraught with, you know, it's, it's, it's very textured. So, you know, it's not prescriptive. And so you have to be sensitive. It allows you to be sensitive to that as opposed to like, okay, I'm going to, it's adversarial. So I got to beat this person into submission. Yeah, and I think framing helps a lot with understanding like the goals of um, dialogue and the goals of interaction with people. Mm-hmm. Um, the first year law student experience is very standardized in the United States, pretty much across the board. If you're ABA accredited, you're going to be taking X classes mm-hmm. your first year. Mm-hmm. Um aside from accreditation and is there a reason to standardize that for i guess educational purposes versus you know we just want everybody to have the same experience because we've professionalized um legal practice you do have to standardize it 
you know, that's in, so it's on, it's on the back end as opposed to the front end. You know, people talk about Abe Lincoln being, you know, the so-and-so lawyer. Abe Lincoln didn't really go to law school and Abe Lincoln, you know, or, or Abe Lincoln never took a bar exam. <laughs> you know, um, you clerked, you apprenticed essentially, um, you know, to become, to become an, an attorney, but we professionalized it for various reasons. Um, we professionalize it. So in professionalization, you need to, you need to be able to then measure that, oh, okay, this is, this is the end product that we're going to get for consistency purposes. Looking at the idea of legal apprenticeships historically, is that something that could really be, I guess, brought back ever, you know, for as alternatives to obtaining a legal education? I think when, when you say, when you say, is it something that could be brought back? Yes, it's possible. And I think it's, it's something that we should consider. I mean, when you think about places like, um, when you think about places like, you know, California that don't require a bar exam, you know, you can take the bar exam any old time, <laughs> you know, um, when you think about, um, you know, New York, uh, when was it? It was after the recession, sometime after recession, I forgot what year, um, where you can take the bar exam after, you know, after your 2L year. Um, and if you pass, then you're in, you don't have to, you know, you're in, you don't have to take, you don't have to go back for your third year. I think, I think it is possible, but I think what's happened is not only the professionalization, but the commercialization of the professionalization. So we have entire, you know, we have entire industries that are now tied to this professionalization of the legal practice um, that would that would collapse. And so realistically speaking, it's not something that we would do because having that would render the entire standardized test, you know, the LSAT, um, it would it would render that worthless. And in many ways, it would render law schools worthless. And, you know, when we look at our higher ed calculus, that's just not going to happen. When you look at, when you look at the place that higher education and then professional higher education uh, plays in the economy, the role that it plays in the economy, that's not going to happen. Yeah, I know um, when COVID first hit um, last year, there were a lot of people who were set up to take the bar exam following their 3L graduation. And I saw a lot of commentary about diploma privilege, you know, kind of the idea of if we're going to have such a standardized education, if we're if our education is rigidly investigated mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. everything by the ABA, then it's mm -hmm. like, why do we have to take a, yet another standardized exam mm -hmm. afterwards, mm -hmm. you know, and it there were a lot of people talking about how it was, you know, kind of like just gatekeeping, you know, a lot of people didn't wanted people to have to take the bar because they themselves had taken the bar, which is kind of true of a lot of different like licensure exams and things like that. So I, I would, this conversation just has me thinking about that argument. And right, because it's on, it's on the front end and the back end of, you know, of, of the perfect of the profession. So there are only a handful of states, not even a handful, 
um, of states that have diploma privilege that offer diploma privileges. Um, Wisconsin does, um, and Wisconsin has reciprocity with um, with a couple of neighboring states. So you could have to, you know, you know, in that way, you might be able to have, you know, diploma privileges, you know, if you're in a state where Wisconsin has reciprocity. But, you know, it's, you know, as we went through the pandemic, it was just very clear that this calculus, you know, is is a calculus. It's not a consideration for, is that a consideration of, and let me put it this way, at least in my mind, it seemed clear that it was a, it, you know, the Supreme Courts around the country erred on the side of trying to, uh, uh, you know, preserve the justification for the necessity of a bar exam, you know, of a licensure exam, as opposed to really looking at what, you know, really looking at, okay, what is the real purpose of this? Because state Supreme Courts can still, you know, state Supreme Courts can still say, okay, um, you can be a self-regulating profession um, and you can register. You know, you, you've graduated law school, um, you, you know, graduated law school, you still go through your character and fitness um, and your professional responsibility exam, which I do think is something that we do, we should retain in that whole process. But that's not even something that we had, we've, we've always had. Um when I was graduating law school, that was the first year that we had the professional, um, you know, the professional responsibility exam. Um, and that was 25 years ago. So again, that's not something that's always been in. It's something that I do think that, you know, should be. And then when you then um, think about, uh, you know, requiring continuing legal education on the back end, it really, really does call into question what is the real necessity of the bar exam? You know, for, for someone, you know, for someone to know criminal law who was never going to be a criminal law attorney, for someone to know, you know, trial advocacy or, you know, or civil pro who was going to be a transactional and policy decision their entire lives, um, you know, or their entire legal career. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it calls, it called that into question. And then you have other jurisdictions. So I know, like I said, in Canada, um, you have, you have um, kind of like modules for bar exams. So if you're never going to be in trial advocacy, you don't have to take that bar exam. You know, if you're going to be in commercial transactional, you take that bar exam. And so, you know, there's, you know, public, you know, so it's like, okay, and that makes that makes sense because it truly is then testing. Okay, the legal education has done this, and now you're going to be going into practice. Let's you know, let's continue to do this because even the CLE requirements on the back end, um, you know, just prove you've taken thirty. That's great, but your continuing legal education is like okay. If I'm in this practice, then at the very least a certain number of your hours should be within the, you know, within where, whatever practice area you're, you know, you're, you're, you're indicating and holding yourself out for. 
Yeah, we kind of see that practice area distinction in the bar exams with the patent bar, you know, so I can see why they do it that way. It makes things a little bit more efficient. You have less worries to deal with. You know, if I'm not going to be a criminal lawyer, then I don't necessarily need to be rigorously tested on that subject matter for something I'm never going to apply mm -hmm. um, on the other side, it is sometimes necessary for lawyers to at least be familiar with and aware of the criminal law. However, you know, it's it's kind of a mixed bag there. And it almost seems now with more states adopting the uniform bar exam, it almost seems like bar exams are becoming more and more, I don't want to say superfluous, but it almost mm -hmm. seems like the distinction becomes artificial once you can take one bar exam and send it to like 30 states. You know, right. at that point, it's like, why are we, why, why do we have the one like it, it makes sense for you to be tested. I believe some states have um, pre-admission requirements on that specific state's laws, and that mm -hmm. makes it more sense if you want to practice in that jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's like it's the distinction becomes a bit artificial in that regard. It is, and and I do, you know, you know, to your point, I want to, I want to, um, uh, you know, respond to your point about okay, if I'm not going to be practicing in criminal law, yeah, I absolutely will believe, you know, you should have an awareness because simply because I'm not going to be practicing on criminal law doesn't mean that I should not be able to see where criminal law then intersects within my area of practice, you know, or, or vice versa, or, you know, or torts or, or, you know, or whatever. Um, and then that's where I think, you know, that's where I think then the, um, you know, your CLE then comes into play where it's like, okay, you take a certain number, you're required to take a certain number in, in your, in your practice area and then take, you know, take, then the rest should be in other practice areas, um, where, you know, when, and that could be, you know, like the core curriculum, you know, part of the core curriculum, whatever that, whatever that is, um, you know, so you can see the, you know, see those intersections, you know, and things like that. But, you know, even with evidence, it's like there's a, there's a baseline of evidence that you need to know, um, you know, doing transactional. There's a baseline, you know, it's, you know, for criminal and, and, and evidence is a class that, um, you know, that supports both civil, you know, civil, commercial, criminal. Um, so it's like, okay, you know, here are core things that you should know and that, you know, you should, you should know and that, that helps shape your practice and that you should continue to build your, you know, you know, through CLE, but for you to, for you to be licensed on that, you've already, you've, you've already just taken evidence <laughs> in law school. So. So moving to an area that's a bit closer to home for you, mm -hmm. um, the obvious reason that um, externships are valuable is because they assist students in gaining real world experience, you know, helping clients, participating in actual legal matters versus kind of learning about the theory and the black letter law. Um, are there other reasons for require acquiring externships or other experiential learning? I mean, that's, you've, you've, you've hit at the core. I think it, it's, I mean, for me, it's important, yes, to get that real life experience, but it is to then apply the process. It's to really hone the critical thinking. You know, it's to really hone the debiasing. It's to really, you know, hone and try on the ethics. You know, your full professionalism is it's that thing to start, you know, to start thinking of, you know, 
outside of the academic and outside of the academy and to think about, okay, who do I want to be as a lawyer? Where, where am I, where am I going to be, you know, uh, uh, as a lawyer, when I say, where am I going to be? It's not, okay, what firm or what corporation or what government agency, whatever, what employer it is, you know, what am I going to be kind of as existentially, you know, what am I, you know, what space am I going to inhabit and how am I going to inhabit this space, you know, within that context of, oh, wow, okay, this is what it really means, you know, when we're talking, you know, the practice of law, you know, it's like the issue, the issues in, in, in many instances, the issues are there that, you know, it's the, the, the issues are there. It is the, the, the skill and the, what you bring to it, um, is the important part and really learning and figuring out what you need to bring to it is what's really important so that you can, you know, so when you, you know, so when you come back into the, you know, the safe arms of, of, of the return to the safe arms of the, of the academy, you're like, oh, wow. Okay. You know, I may want to speak with this professor. I may want to, you know, uh, you know, really, really engage with my, with my externship professor, because when you, when you, when you go in the externship seminar or when you go into the, you know, when you're in the clinic or you're in one of the practices, it is, it's very, you know, it's very important that, I mean, to me, it's very important that students really, really um, assess and know who they are um, again, as individuals, as their identities, as their, um, you know, as their values, um, so that they know what they are bringing to the practice, because the information is just that information. Now, as you are applying it, you're actually, you know, and you're critically thinking about it and making sure that you're critically engaging and critically thinking about it. Um, what you're actually doing is building knowledge and to not, you know, and, and that is my hope that, you know, students think about these things this way and not just, okay, you know, not, not just plug and play. Okay. I have this thing to do, you know, what are the, you know, what are the Lego pieces I need to do to kind of like build this? It's like, no, you have to kind of like think, oh, okay, what is this thing? Why is this thing? Why is this thing? What is this thing? Yes. What are the Lego pieces? But then what's going to be the impact of this Lego piece over that Lego piece? You know, mm -hmm. so. So, it yeah. does seem like it for, um, serves a role in terms of like socialization as a lawyer too, because lawyers do hold very specific roles in society as, you know, fiduciaries, confidants, you know, trusted individuals, you know, as, as many stereotypes as there are about lawyers, you know, mm -hmm. we are mm -hmm. trusted individuals. Mm -hmm. So it really does um, highlight kind of like, this is how a lawyer behaves. This is, you're going to be put into an environment where you're around other practicing lawyers, not just academics, but other practicing lawyers in your field. And this is how they behave. It's kind of like a mm -hmm. letting you out of the, the gate just a little bit so you can right. figure it out. 
Right. And I'm glad you said that. That's a good word, um, socialization, because that's, that is what it is. It is, this is how other lawyers behave. Hmm. Should it be? Should they be behaving that way? How would you behave? And, you know, and you, you know, it's your opportunity to develop, you know, to develop how you're going to practice. Um, experiential learning was not a requirement when I was in, when I was in law school, you had, you did have a couple of practica, you did have some, you know, one or two clinics, um, but nowhere near as rich as, you know, kind of like the externship environment that we have at Loyola um, or the, you know, the number of clinics that we have um, in, in, in practica and grown we have at Loyola, um, you know, but it is, it is that socialization and, and to take it back to the, you know, to take it back to our, our discussion on the curriculum, um, it is bringing all of that, you know, uh, 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 to the fore um, and realizing and recognizing, oh, wow, okay, you know, this is where the rubber hits the road. And yes, I'm seeing all of this. What do I you know, you know, what do I want to absorb? What do I want to, you know, reject or push away? Um, you know, you know, who is modeling things that make sense to me? Um, and that makes sense to, you know, it's not the what of practice, you know, law school kind of, kind of teaches you the what of practice, but when you get into experiential learning, it is now the how, and, um, and like you said, that socialization and to go back again, to return to the conversation on the curriculum, not only history, I think we need to have some kind of psychological training in the profession as well, because, um, in all of our roles as attorneys, um, psychology plays so much more of a greater role than I ever realized, you know, until I went into practice. Yeah, I think um, incorporating the psychology of some kind into the legal profession is an interesting suggestion because a lot of the times you don't understand, you go into this profession without a lot of understanding of kind of other people to some degree, you know, everybody understands themselves. It's hard to sometimes understand other people. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely comes into play with um, things like negotiation. Like we talked about alternative dispute resolution. You really have to understand the mm-hmm. other side to be able to properly engage with them in a constructive way. Mm-hmm. And I think the same could be said for adversarial positions as well. So, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even understanding your clients. So mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and don't assume everybody understands themselves. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Um, I think they there's been calls for that um, to be a part of med school, uh, med school teaching and training as well. Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. understanding your patient, understanding, mm-hmm. you know, the needs of your patient versus what you understand their needs to be as a, um, as a doctor. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the legal profession could probably benefit from similar um, mm-hmm. Oh, there's so much that the legal profession could benefit from. It's not even, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Put it in that pile in the corner. <laughs> so speaking of improvements to the legal profession, is there any is there anything that the legal education could incorporate relatively 
quickly that would improve the overall process for the better. You know, we've talked a bit about diversity and inclusion. We've talked a bit about historical um, components. We just talked about psychology. Is there anything kind of, if, if the ABA were calling you up right now to ask you about improvements to the legal education and they had, you know, like, what's your one piece of advice or tip? What would you say? Oh, jeez. <laughs> the one piece of advice or tip. Um, would probably be the, the, the diversity and inclusion because that intersects with so many of the other things. So that would probably be the one thing. And a close second would be the psychology. Doing those two would force, you know, the, the, the legal education, you know, the, the training to really kind of like, wow, okay, there's, there's a lot that we have to do here. Um, and, and then, like I said, I think the other things would then kind of emerge from that. Yeah. And I think diversity and inclusion training seems to be like the, the hot new thing to talk mm -hmm. about now as well. And mm -hmm. I think it's also inherently valuable in that you're going to be representing clients who are diverse from you, not necessarily racially, but um, neurologically, mm -hmm. um, you know, gender diversity, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And also from a pragmatic business perspective, even incorporating diverse ideas actually benefits mm -hmm. you know, businesses and law firms and, you know, increases their ability to, you know, function as just effective. Right. And I think, yeah, effectively. Yeah. Um, I think it's, you know, it's beyond that because, you know, people don't, I mean, let's be, let's be real. People don't really buy that argument. Um, I think, for me, the whole, for me, the, 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 the big sell on diversity is how are you, diversity in the legal profession, is how can we have a profession, how can we have rule of law in a country performed, delivered by people that is in, in, in a country of broad plurality, but is not delivered and implemented, not structured, not delivered, not implemented by the people that reflect that. So, because if you think and you just look at that, what we're saying is, is that I mean, we shouldn't even have to go to, okay, diverse thought and diverse this, you know, diverse that. We really should just be, oh, okay, what are we really saying? That it should be an eight, it should be 85% white males know, can address, can deliver, can support, can develop the structures that oversee our culture and society. I mean, is that what, if that's what we're saying, you know, when, you know, when we go through the whole, you know, it's like, you know, prove it, make, you know, you know, make the case. I don't have to make the case. You know, I have one question. Are we okay with one racial demographic, largely one economic demographic, when you look at the history of, of the ABA, largely one economic demographic, so we're looking at class, 
and then you fall along all of the other demographic, all you know, all along the other other demographics. You know, then you go religion, then you go against sexual orientation, you know, um, uh, uh, gender identity. You know, you go along all of this. We're okay with eighty-five of those percent of those people of that one demographic with very little intersectional in, in intersections in the in the in the identities, saying dictating the terms under which our society operates. I mean, that's really the question that I have for, you know, for, to, to put out to everyone. So for me, it's not about making all of these cases and going through and blah, blah, blah. It is, are we okay with that? Yes. Are we not okay with that? Then what are we going to do about it? Yeah. And you see a lot of the people um, who are of one demographic just failing to consider the needs of just other demographics because it's not their lived experience to some degree. You know, mm-hmm. people who are who have disabilities, for example, mm-hmm. you know, that is their whole lived experience to some degree. And mm-hmm. and they are, are more frequently able to consider the needs of people within their own demographic. And even then, the, mm-hmm. the um, demographic of, of people with disabilities is very far ranging. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So. And, and, and intersecting. So it's, you know, so it's, you know, we really have to think about, you know, like you said, you know, you know, DEI is all the rage right now. And the thing is that it shouldn't be all the rage. It should just be a natural, it should be our natural way of being. Why? Because we're a country of 330 million people who have um, a, an, 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 a diverse range of identities, of values, of needs, of, of, of everything. And so, you know, rule of law is a, is a literally a fundamental pillar about how society operates. What are we going to do? Yeah. And changing (laughs) the rule of law, you know, really starts at the educational level because a lot of the times, you know, going to a professional school like this and med school, et cetera, is really about kind of showing you how the profession works as much as Mm -hmm. teaching you the literal knowledge. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when you go to law school, you learn how to think like a lawyer is what everybody always says that you learn. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not being taught, you know, the different ways in which people approach problems and approach situations mm-hmm. and understand like everything, mm-hmm. then you're not really opening future professionals to, mm-hmm. you know, alternative and diverse worldviews. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, if you don't understand constructs and I mean, quite frankly, you know, it's like I knew this kind of emotionally, but I didn't, un- you know, because no- normally people say I understood something intellectually. I didn't understand it emotionally. But there are things that I understood, you know, emotionally, um, but I didn't I didn't get this, like, duh, a moment um, until I was almost 10 years into my career when I started doing rule of law work. And I was like, oh, this is why this is the way it is, you know, because, you know, rule of law determines how our, determines how our society operates. You know, it is that, it is, it is the linchpin of our social compact. And if every, if, if all of the voices are not in the compact, do we really have a compact? Yeah, we talked about that in um, 
my criminal law class, my uh, second semester of law school, that really what we consider crimes and specific laws are really just what we consider acceptable as a society. And they vary exactly. based on different societies and different cultures and different groups. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, I look forward to a day where we can include that maybe as a component of professional responsibility, or it will be as widespread as the legal ethics have become since you went to law school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, you know, the struggle is real, as, as you kids say this day, yeah. these days. Um, <laughs> but no, you know, it's like, you know, keep pressing on and, you know, keep beating the drum, keep talking and keep beating the drum. And, um, you know, because the law, I mean, the, the profession is very conservative. And I don't mean, I mean conservative with a small c. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is very conservative and very slow to slow to act. So, you know, for, for the younger folks out there, it's, you're going to have to be patient and you're going to have to do things that don't seem intuitive, but you're going to have to not approach it from the perspective of, I want it. It's like, okay, you want something. We all want something, you know, people in hell want water. Um, but it is, now that we're lawyers, now it's like, okay, what am I able and willing to do, you know, to, to, to make the, the, the necessary transformations. That was a really great note to end on and ponder definitely for a bit after, um, our conversation. Is there anything else you have to say that you felt, um, you didn't get to address and that you would like to? No, Leanne, you pulled it all out of me. Um, (laughs) again, I, I really enjoyed the, I really enjoyed the conversation and, um, would love to continue it with you and, um, and all your listeners. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, I'm Leanne Johnson and this has been director Chipo Numbuya and we've been talking about the legal education. That's all from us here at The Pod Begin. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, Leanne Jossend, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.